Let me ask you, please, to uh, take the scripture and open to Colossians and chapter 1, please. Colossians and chapter 1. I want to read in a moment verses 24 to 29. Colossians and chapter 1, please. find that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray now for me, for us, that you would enable us to see that which is true, which is your word, and we would receive it, we would see it, receive it, embrace it wholeheartedly, Father, that it would work deeply in our lives. I pray, Father, that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to embrace, and we may walk with Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians in chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of, his, of the glory of, his, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works Within me, as I've been reading through, working my way through with you this letter of Paul to the church in Colossae, there's a number of expressions, a number of expressions from which I'm finding myself on a very daily basis living from. By that I mean, I'm, they just come to my mind and, and, and give me strength and help me as I, as, I, as I live out my days. Not only do they, these expressions help me as I read through this letter, kind of like little stepping stones as getting across the lawn of Paul's letter here, but, but they, 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 they're, they're memorable. They stick in my head. Each has a context, of course, which helps us understand it, but, but still I find myself more and more coming back to these expressions, like in chapter 1 and verse 10 where Paul prays for them and prays that they're to live a, a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That little expression just comes to my mind in, in, in all kinds of circumstances. What am I to do here? I'm to live in a manner, walk in a manner, live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. To realize, to have my soul filled with the fact, uh, a couple of verses later, where Paul writes that the Father has qualified us to receive this inheritance, to share in this inheritance of the saints. He's, he's qualified us. I'm not qualified for it, but he's qualified for us. To, to realize that God has worked in such a way to transfer us from the domain of darkness and really transplant us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And in that kingdom... There's redemption and the forgiveness of sins. When I, when I think about who Jesus is and, and how we're to rely upon him, I, I can't help but, but remember the expression that he's the image of the invisible God. I realize that all things have been created through him 
and for him. He's the creator and everything is summed up in him. Everything exists to serve him. Thus, it's no surprise that he's preeminent. And so I think all the time he's preeminent. He's the first in everything. Is he first in this moment in my life? Is he first in this decision as I'm making it? Is he first in this feeling that I'm having? Is he first in this thought? Is he first in this expression? Is he the one who's ruling and guiding me at every turn? He is preeminent. Everything is by him and through him and for him. In him, all fullness dwells. He lacks nothing. Thus, he can supply completely and sufficiently because he lacks nothing. In him, all fullness dwells. There's reconciliation between people like me, those once alienated from God. There's reconciliation with God by way of the cross of Jesus. Keeping that always in my mind. I'm not estranged from God anymore because Christ has come because of what He's done. I trust in Him. Thus, I'm reconciled to God. I never need to feel alone. I never need to behave as if I'm an orphan. But yet, I belong to Him to realize that even with all of that, there is suffering. As Paul explains through his life of ministry, that he fills up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Not that the afflictions he suffer or that we suffer are atoning in any sense, but simply they continue on in their suffering in this life as we bring the gospel to a world like the world in which we live. And then that wonderful expression, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That everything that's true of him is extended to me, to us, because he dwells so closely. He dwells within us that we're united to him. So everything that he's achieved, everything that he's won on the cross extends to us forgiveness and acceptance and adoption into God's very family. His spirit living within us to transform us. All of that. And that's our hope that a day will come and we will see, live in the very glory of God. Now this expression from verse 29 that if God will help me, I want to take up. Paul says that I toil and struggle with all his energy which he so powerfully works in me. What a wonderful expression, this, this expression. That for this I was struggling with all his energy. It was a little bit unexpected. I didn't quite expect to see that. I toil and it exhausts me, right? I toil and it's my energy. But he doesn't say that. He says, I toil, I struggle with all his energy. And Paul did toil and struggle. I mean, his ministry, the calling to which he was called, was to... Make everyone, that is everyone he came in contact with, and even everyone who he would have influence over, to make everyone mature in Christ. That was his calling as he brought the gospel throughout the known world. And as he wrote these letters... And for him it was toil and struggle. You see, he explained his whole life from two perspectives. One, it's toil and struggle. On the other, it was God's energy at work in him. And which was it? And of course the answer is both. It was him toiling and struggling, yet he knew there was something else at work here. And it was God at work in him, in the midst of his toil and struggle. In fact, as we understand these little words, toil and struggle, in their original language, the the word toil gives the sense of exhaustion. To toil 
to the extent of being completely and utterly spent. This isn't just I worked hard, I went home and had a sandwich and watched some TV, went to bed. This is, this is I toiled and at the end of the day I was completely spent, I was completely exhausted. This means I've given myself wholly over to this. I've left nothing in myself. Everything is spent in the midst of my toiling. This struggling is real struggle. The Greek word for this word struggle is the word agonizomai, which means to agonize. It's a real struggle. Paul engaged wholly in all of this. And, and, and what I think, and maybe it's just that we're American Christians, we're the only kind I really know well, but maybe we th- it seems to me that we think that the, the life of being a Christian, both in ministry and our walk of holiness, and the two really can't be separated, because if you walk in holiness, you will minister. There is no holiness without ministry. Holiness is relational. Holiness isn't just that which is taking place within me to make me pure. But as God works with that purity within me, it expresses itself outward in the one word that can be used to describe the life of the Christian, which is love. And so you see, there can't be holiness without serving. There can't be holiness without ministry. That's why I tell wives, pray for your husbands one thing. That he is holy. Because if he's holy, he'll love you. Because you can't be holy and not love, you see. Husbands, pray for your wives that she's holy. Because if she's holy, she will love you as she should. You will love her if you're holy as you should. See, that's the prayer, you see, to pray. Because it means holiness, that there is love. Because that's the fruits of holiness so Paul's life of holiness to be holy to to struggle with sin in his own life to be holy so that he can minister and to take up this ministry of making everyone mature in Christ he knew that it would take everything that he could possibly have and so the words he uses to describe that is toil and struggle In fact, when he was first called, you might remember on the road to Damascus, Jesus said to Ananias, actually who was the person who went to kind of pick up Paul and bring him home and all of that, he he was the one to go to Paul's home. Ananias was told by Jesus that I I want you to show him how much he must suffer for my sake. His calling was certainly a calling that would lead him into this suffering and indeed he did. We read of Paul's suffering. He toiled diligently. In fact, we have a little expression that's even used today of missionaries who pay their own way. It's called tent making. Because Paul was a tent maker very often in his life. He says, I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm ministering among you so I can take advantage of you or, or, or benefit from you. No. He went into places and he worked. He made tents. Uh, he, he supported himself, if you will, and still did ministry on top of that. And so his life was consumed with all of this. He toiled and he struggled. And not only that, but he, he toiled and struggled in ministry. He spoke to the elders of Ephesus, you can find this in Acts chapter 20, that he worked day and night. And he said, one thing I hope that you've gained from me is that by working hard we can care for those who are weak. And we know the struggle that he had, not only the struggles from suffering and all of the things that happened to Paul about his imprisonments and his beatings and his being left for dead and his being starved and all of those kinds of things, but also that little expression he uses, and also my concern for all the churches. 
had never left him. It was always a struggle. In fact, when he writes to the church in Colossae in chapter 2 and verse 1, he puts it like this. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for those who have not seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For Paul, this ministry was work, it was struggle, it was agonizing because of his concern that people know Christ and walk in him. Parents know this. Parents know this struggle, that their kids would know Christ and walk in him. Husbands know this for their wives, wives for husbands. We know this for people that we directly love and we desire the best for. We know the concern that we have for them and it never leaves us. And Paul knew this and he referred to his agony as a struggle for their very lives, for their souls. In fact, when he wrote to the church in Galatia, Paul wrote he was so uh, attached to them that he was like a mother giving birth. Until, as he put it, Christ is formed in you. That's the sense that he had about his interactions with them. That kind of work, that kind of toil in their lives. In fact, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 9, Paul refers to the Christian life, his life in ministry, as, as, as an athlete in training. He puts this, Don't you know that in a race all the runners compete and that only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one boxing the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Uh, Paul lays it out and he says, listen, this is, this is what I do. Like an athlete disciplines his body, I discipline my body, my soul, everything, so that I can be effective in the work of ministry. That's always in my mind, and that I could be effective even as I walk with Christ. That was what was on his mind. In chapter 15 and verse 10, Paul says this of his own life, but by the grace of God I am what I am, but his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I worked harder than any of them. So it informed Paul's life that he would work hard. In Galatians in chapter 5, Paul speaks of this war, this opposition between flesh and spirit. And you can feel it in him, in his own life, uh, even as he struggles there uh, with uh, ministry, with sin. In Romans chapter 7, which is probably autobiographical of in some sense of Paul's life is wrestling with sin. He speaks of knowing that which is true and struggling to do it, not being able to do what he knows he should do. You feel the struggle uh, in the midst of all that. As he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, he uses this expression of his life. Towards the end, he says, I've been poured out like a drink offering. Now, you don't have to know everything about Old Testament imagery to know that doesn't sound good. All right, that sounds one who's, who's just about done, just about finished, whose life has been poured out. And he speaks to Timothy of his own life, and he speaks to Timothy, and he says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. It's a fight to maintain faith. He says, fight it, and fight for the faith. And that little word faith, uh, fight, is the word agonizomai. I mean, struggle. 
continue to struggle to maintain faith and to share this faith with others. That's the life he lived. He told Timothy, flee from that which is evil. He told Timothy, be diligent. This is true of all the other New Testament writers too. Peter writes of this struggle. He talks about the, don't let the passions of the flesh overtake you because they war within. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews in chapter 12, puts it like this. He writes, In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. There's a struggle against sin. There's a full engagement in this. And what I introduced all of this with is sometimes I think as American Christians, we think this should be easy. Is that we live for leisure. We live for recreation. We live for time off. We live for when the day is done. We live for the weekend. All those kinds of things. But for Paul, he's saying, no, no, no. You don't understand. Following Christ isn't like that. It's being fully engaged all the time. And it's your work. It's toil. It can be struggle. The struggle against sin. The struggle for the souls of others to minister well to them. We have a tendency, I think, in our culture to be afraid to commit to things. We're so afraid that, oh, if I say yes to that, that will mean a sacrifice of something. And Paul says, well, of course it will. Of course it will mean a sacrifice of something. That's what it means to follow after Christ. We live in such a way that we renounce that which once controlled us. And now we rely and trust upon Christ and his values for us. We're afraid to say yes to this service for fear we might miss that show or might not be able to do this or might not be able to do that. And Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Your whole life is to be consumed with following after Christ. Don't be afraid of that. Great evangelist Dwight Moody was once asked by someone thinking they would receive this deep spiritual answer. And they said, Dr. Moody, when you go to bed at night, what's the last thing that you say to God? And Moody said, I normally say to him, I'm tired. (laughs) Why? Because his life, his day had been spent. It had been spent following Christ. Tiredness is not a bad thing. You see, what makes us tired often as Americans is boredom or self-indulgence. That's tiring. It's tiring to live that kind of life that's always worried about oneself and always thinking about oneself. That makes us tired. We go to bed and sort of sleep. But a good kind of tired, we all know it, is the kind of tired where there's been good exertion in the course of the day, whether it be physical or mental or emotional, spiritual, whatever exertion. Good exertion where you feel productive, where you feel like you've done something, you've accomplished something. You might go to bed at night a bit sore, you might go to bed at night very tired, but you look back on the day and you say, I accomplished something and now I'm going to get rest that will refresh us. That will be refreshing so that I can get up the next day and do again the same. It's interesting that that Paul writes to the church in Galatia about weariness. And he puts it like this in Galatians in chapter 6 and verse 9. He's been talking about reaping and sowing. And he said, and let us not grow weary of doing good. Why would you grow weary in doing good? 
What could be the, the remedy for not growing weary while you're doing good? He says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Uh, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The reason we grow weary in doing well or in doing good is when we miss the point of it. Paul's saying, here's the point of it. The point of it, if all you're doing good in the name of Christ, is there's a harvest to come. And that harvest is great. Keep your eye on that. Keep your eye on that end. Keep your eye on the good that is to come. And you will not grow weary. When Paul writes to Timothy, he writes like this about life. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine you followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. He's saying, here's... You know, bodily training, that's good. We need to be fit physically. But he also says that you mustn't forget about training for godliness. Because godliness has value not only in this life, but in some mysterious way also carrying on in the life to come, he says. It has eternal value. So why is it that we spend so much of our time worrying about... Our physical bodies. Not a bad thing to worry about. I should be worrying more about that. But, but our physical bodies and not our spiritual bodies. How much time do we spend in such pursuits of physical versus spiritual? Material versus eternal? And so he says it. But then he goes on to say, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and struggle. We toil and strive. So he toils and struggles in ministry. He toils and struggles in, 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 in relation to his own godliness and holiness. He says, For this end, to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. He says, Listen, I understand the great value of this godliness because my face is turned towards Christ. We need to be fully engaged in this life of following after Jesus. It should tire us out. It should stretch us. It should take us out of our comfort zones. We should find ourselves involved in things and involved with people that make us uncomfortable, that stretch us, uh, that cause us to say, I don't know that I can do this. I mean, difficult for an American to say. I don't know that I can do this. To be in over our heads. So that we have to really work at it with every ounce of our being. As a believer, you can't mail it in. You've got to be there for it. And the way that Paul could do this, yeah, he had his, his eyes set on the end of what was to come. But he also knew something else. He also knew that even as he toiled and struggled, the truth of the matter is that he knew that God was in him at work. 
Gorgias, Paul, lived out his life. He knew, yes, there are some things that God had simply done for him, period. It's God who, in the mystery of eternity, has chosen us to be his. It's God who gives us new life and gives us new birth. All of that is his to do and his alone. It's something that we're completely passive with. We can't do anything about it. No one can conceive themselves. It's God who gives us new birth. It's God who enables us to believe in all of that. But Paul also knew that that in becoming a Christian, in following after Christ, he was to be fully engaged. God wouldn't just sort of work through him as if he was an empty vessel just standing there to to, to, to channel God. But rather that God was transforming, God was at work in him. And that Paul then would work. That Paul's efforts would be energized by the very presence and power of God. Notice how the scripture expresses that work of God in us. Jesus in John chapter 15 and verse 5 puts it like this. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul's toiling wasn't just toiling, his struggle wasn't just struggling, but his toiling and struggling were in God and through him and from him because he knew that apart from God he could do nothing, but he was attached to him as a branch is attached to the vine. In Romans, we read this in chapter 8 and verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice how he puts it. It isn't simply putting to death the deeds of the body, but it's putting them to death by the Spirit that is knowing that God is helping you. In Romans in chapter 15, in verse 30, Paul puts it like this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. He's saying, pray for me. I know there's more than just me. And so I'm toiling, yes, I'm struggling, yes, I'm working, yes. But, But please, pray for me, because I know... That all of this is only by God's work in me. I referred a few minutes ago to this passage in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 and verse 10. Paul writes, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that uh, that is with me. He's saying, listen, I know it's all of God's grace. But yet I'm working. Well, why am I working? Because God is at work in me. He puts that clearly, if this can be put clearly, in Philippians in chapter 2. In verse, uh, verse 12, he writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, we're simply working out that which God has has worked into us. And God continues to work out that which he's, help us work out that which he's worked in. 
So Paul's thinking, I've got to work out my salvation, trusting God in fear and trembling. But I can only do that knowing that he's at work in me. It's he in me, Christ in me, at work. And then in chapter 4, verse 13, verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things, but he doesn't stop there. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so you see, his energy he knew came from God, but it felt like his own energy. He was fully engaged, always knowing God was fully engaged. In fact, what gave him the faith to be fully engaged was to know that God was fully engaged in him. He knew that if God left for a moment, there'd be no need to be fully engaged. There'd be no hope at all. But because God was at work within, he knew then that he could be fully engaged. Over the years, theologians have wrestled with this idea Francis Schaeffer had a wonderful expression of the Christian life. He says that the Christian life is to be lived in active passivity. Active meaning fully engaged. Passive meaning trusting always that God is at work in me. Not either or, both and. Active passivity. Our friend Jerry Bridges who writes of this often speaks of it as dependent responsibility. Here's how he puts it in a new book, by the way, called The Bookends of the Christian Life. He was advertising this the last time he was here. and he just sent it to me. He writes this, Some have misunderstood Paul's words, that is from Colossians 1.29 that we read. Some have mis- misunderstood Paul's words to mean he never got tired, as if Paul were a mere pipeline through which God's power flowed. Rather, the Spirit worked through Paul in such a way that all his physical, mental, and emotional faculties were fully engaged. The Spirit's role was not to make Paul's own energy unnecessary, but rather to make it effective. Right? The Spirit's role was not to make Paul's own energy unnecessary, but rather to make it effective. And of course, even Paul's natural abilities and spiritual gift- giftedness were the result of the Spirit's work. Another author, uh, name of Sam Storms, you would not have heard of him, puts it like this. He, suspect, he says, I suspect that many are tempted to ask, why bother? If God's power is so great and so effective and so readily available, why do you feel it necessary to exert yourself so passionately and no doubt painfully? Why toil? Why struggle? Shouldn't you just let go and let God? Absolutely not. The presence of God's power does not preclude Paul's personal struggle or energetic striving or laboring. Rather, it makes it possible. God's power is not designed to eliminate our responsibility to work hard, but to enable us to fulfill it. Paul is able to work hard because God is working hard. The latter doesn't destroy or undermine the former. I can't repeat this often enough, he says. The operation of divine energy doesn't eliminate the physical and emotional exhaustion that Paul feels. God's working in and through us is not the sort that enables us to put our efforts on cruise control. Do you remember, there was a time in the life of Joshua that um, he was called to lead the Israelites into a battle against the Amalekites. 
Moses went up on a mountain. Now, depending on who you would, were looking at, would depend, would, would influence how you would describe the battle. If you were just looking at Joshua, you would say, well, for a while he was winning, then for a while he was losing, and then he won. And he won because his army, his people, were more powerful than the Amalekites. But if you were watching Moses on the mountain, you would say, well, he started to pray. And as he prayed, uh, it seemed as if he was praying great prayers of victory for Joshua. And then he tired. And when he tired, it seems like the prayers faltered. But there were two priests with him, Aaron and Hur. And they lifted his arms up so he could pray even more. And then again, he prayed powerfully. What was going on? Joshua was working out the battle with fear and trembling. And we know that God was at work in him because we know that Moses was praying. Do you remember how David described the battle with Goliath? He said to Goliath, Goliath, if I could paraphrase, you're in big trouble. You haven't just come against me, you've come against the Lord of hosts. The battle is his. Now who killed Goliath? David or God? The answer is yes. Right? It was God at work through David. Now, we we get this sense because it was rather miraculous little guy, big guy. Stone, throw, boom, all that. That's miraculous. We see that. We see God at work. But yet still, it was David who faced him. Now, what gave David the chutzpah to face Goliath? It was God in him. It was God's battle. God was at work. And so David, his energy was used. I suspect that when he twirled that stone around in that sling, he used every ounce of strength that he had. I don't think he said, well, you know, God's going to take care of this. But I think he wrapped that thing around like he'd never wrapped that thing around before. And he let it fly with as much precision as he knew how to have. But at the end of the day, he knew that it was God who was at work because he saw the precision and the strength of that stone that killed that giant. Jehoshaphat, enemies on every corner of the globe. As he looked around, he was afraid. He turned and sought the Lord. The prophet comes to Jehoshaphat and said, Don't worry, Jehoshaphat, the battle isn't yours, it's God's. Now, tomorrow, go up and face the enemy. I would have said, if the battle's God's, let him go up and face the enemy. But Jehoshaphat went up the next day, faced the enemy. And he faced it, really, by singing. He took the choir. They sang. And they sang, and as they did, all the enemies around Jehoshaphat killed each other, essentially. Who won that battle? Well, Jehoshaphat faced in faith, sang, did what he was supposed to do, But yet, the result was bigger than Jehoshaphat could have ever imagined. Nehemiah was building a wall around the city of Jerusalem. The city was vulnerable. There were enemies that came against uh, Nehemiah and the people. What did Nehemiah do? He told the people to pray. He told the people to remember God. And he told the people to stand guard and take up their swords. Now, are those all inconsistent with one another? And the answer is no, they're not. Why did they take up their swords? They didn't take up their swords because they thought that they were powerful enough to defeat all the enemies because they really weren't. But they took up their swords in faith, knowing that that was the means by which God normally used in order to defeat his enemies. And so they prayed, they trusted, they remembered the Lord, they took up their swords in faith. 
And they stood. Who won the battle? God or the people? Yes. God calls us to follow after him. We do that by faith, knowing he's at work within us. We need to be fully engaged within us. What should we expect? We should expect to feel weak. 1 Corinthians in chapter 12, the apostle writes this, verse 7, To keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We should expect not to feel strong. If Paul, who gave evidence of greater strength than any of us, felt weak, then we should expect to feel weak. That should be the feeling we should expect to toil and struggle with this. We should expect battle. We should expect to feel the pressure of the flesh sinful nature, the world, the devil against us. We should expect that. We should expect exhaustion. We should expect to be tired at the end of the day, at the end of the struggle. There should be times when, just like the psalmist, we should feel as if we're laid low in the dust. We should feel that. That's not unusual to feel as a believer in Christ. But we should also know this, that when we are weak, he is strong. You remember 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes to the people telling them about comfort and strength that he knew. But he received that comfort and strength at a point in time when he thought he was going to die. And he said God had brought him to that point of feeling as if everything was lost and that he was going to die so that he could then turn his attention to rely upon the one who raises the dead. And that's what our weakness should do to us. You see, as we come to read through the scripture, we should realize the call that's upon our life, which is to live like Jesus and to make everyone else mature in him. If you think that's possible, I feel sorry for you. It's only possible by way of depending and trusting upon him. And so when we read that in the scripture about the life to which we've been called, we should realize as Paul does, and he says, Who can, who's sufficient for these things? And he says, the only one who makes us sufficient for these things is God at work in us by his spirit. So we feel weakness, but we know something else. We feel weakness, but we know that God is at work within us. Thus, we renounce our self-sufficiency and we rely upon him and thus those feelings of weakness shouldn't keep us from engaging but in the midst of that weakness still we engage because we know that we're to toil and struggle with all his energy we know that we're to work out our salvation in fear and trembling because it's God who's at work within us we know that we can do all things no matter how we feel, through Christ who strengthens us. I've read this poem before to you, if I have it. 
by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's helpful to me. And Bonhoeffer writes this while he's in prison. Bonhoeffer, you might remember, a Lutheran pastor during the Second World War was arrested and killed uh, just a few days before the war was over. He was executed. He writes this about his imprisonment in June of 1944. Poem entitled, Who Am I? He writes, Who Am I? They often tell me I would step from my prison cell poised, cheerful, and sturdy, like a nobleman from his country estate. Who am I? They often tell me I would speak with my guards freely, pleasantly, and firmly, as if I had it to command. Who am I? I've also been told that I suffer the days of misfortune with serenity, smiles, and pride, as someone accustomed to victory. Am I really what others say about me? Am I only what I know of myself, restless, yearning, and sick, like a bird in its cage struggling for the breath of life, as though someone were choking my throat, hungering for colors, for flowers, for the songs of birds, thirsting for kind words and human closeness, so shaking with anger at capricious tyranny and the pettiest slurs, bedeviled by anxiety, awaiting great events that might never occur, fearfully powerless, and worried for friends far away, weary and empty in prayer, in thinking and doing, weak and ready to take leave of it all. Who am I? This man or that other? And then this man today and tomorrow another? Am I both all at once, an imposter to others, but to me little more than a whiny, despicable weakling? Does what is in me compare to a vanquished army that flees in disorder before a battle already won? Who am I? They mock me these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, you know me, O God. You know I am yours. You see that picture of this one who looked so confident who was doing it all, but yet felt very different than that. That's often how it is with us. How do you know God's at work within you? How when someone curses you and you bless them. When someone aggravates you to the point of really thinking that you should not only take offense but take action. And yet you're patient with them. To one who treats you cruelly and yet you treat them kindly. When there's a situation in which to be involved would be of great inconvenience to yourself, sacrifice even, take you out of your comfort zone, but yet still there's this compulsion to do it, and you do. When someone has hurt you deeply, and you forgive them. When someone is in need, and you otherwise would most naturally turn away, and yet there's compassion Within you, even when you feel like turning away, something in you says, no, I must help. I'm a follower of Christ. God is at work within you. That's what energizes us. That's what moves us when we see these needs and so contrary to perhaps our natural instincts, yet we know something else. We feel as if we can't, but yet we know that because he is in us, the very person, presence of Christ being formed in us, then we say, I will. Don't expect to coast your way to heaven. 
It shall require labor, toil, struggle. Full engagement of every ounce of our being. But don't expect to be left out to dry. Expect to see God at work. Expect to be energized by Him so that you can say, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that so powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Father. It's a great blessing in this word, though it begins as much in Scripture, that is, with some sense of difficulty and struggle, but yet we know that you're at work in us, so I pray that you would give to us strength, that you would enable us to acknowledge our weakness and need to enable us to daily renounce our self-sufficiency and daily rely upon Christ, that we would step out in him, trusting in his work within us. Father, we pray for parents that that would be true in raising our children that though we do not feel at all up for the task, though it is great work and struggle, we pray that you would grant grace to parents, that they would know your strength in the midst of raising children. We think particularly this morning uh, of uh, Josh and Carol Nye, whose little one was just born, and so many other parents just new parents in our congregation be with them we pray too father for those recovering from from difficult illnesses and surgeries for Ann Jarbo father we pray for her that you would grant grace to her and her family uh, for Mim McGrogan as she suffers again uh, for my dear Karen as she recovers and for so many others father in the life of our church that find life difficult I pray that in the midst of weakness, you would grant strength. Father, I thank you for the family promise work that we're in the midst of and pray for those families that you continue to bless them. They have this sense of weakness, of homelessness, and we have this sense of weakness of how can we help. We pray, Father, that these moms and kids step out in faith to join this program as we step out in faith to help them, that we all can relinquish our self-sufficiency and self-dependence and trust in you and that you would supply strength. Father, for our vacation Bible school, as so many children will come here soon, we pray for your help and your strength. For our summer youth activities and ministries, our interns, our trips and all of that, we pray for your abiding presence. For those who do ministry from our place Liz Gehring in Honduras, Scott and Jane Quidon in Croatia, Mike and Amy in Asia. Father, we pray for them that you would grant strength, though I trust every day weakness makes its presence. And Father, for those of us in this church who are called to give all of us, I pray that even in these uncertain times that we would trust in you, that you would grant to us the strength to do that which we need to do which is good to do, which is right to do, even as we give this, we trust you with. Father, I pray that we would live our lives fully engaged, that as believers we wouldn't be coasting, but that we would be fighting the good fight of faith, enduring to the end, 
And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.